Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dever. Today's guest, Utah Senator Mike Lee. Lee is one of the Senate's most conservative members and one of the ones who hasn't wavered much in his approach to issues since last year's elections, which came with Donald Trump winning the presidency, of course, but also the Republican Party being in full control of the House and the Senate. There is one thing that he's wavered on, Donald Trump himself. Lee very notably kept his distance from Trump last year. Here's a headline from the New York Times from June. Senator Mike Lee unloads on why he can't embrace Donald Trump. Well, like a lot of his colleagues, he's been trying to work with Trump since the election. That's included on the health care bill, and you'll hear why he thinks it's absolutely gone the wrong way. But the relationship with Trump is a complicated one. These days, Lee says, though not super eagerly as you'll hear, that Trump is the head of the Republican Party, and he has to work with him. History is important to Lee. He's written a few books delving into it, the most recent being one called Written Out of History, The Forgotten Founders Who Fought Big Government that came out at the end of May. Okay, if you've listened to a few of these podcasts, you might remember that I got a master's degree in history before turning around and getting into journalism, and I've read a lot of these kind of pop history books. Lee's argument is that liberals have attached their own politics to the founding fathers, and that's not right because they're cherry-picking statements that they like. He does some cherry-picking of his own and finds a defense of limited government that's at our country's core. Lee's target is more the Lin-Manuel Miranda version of history. Miranda wrote about Hamilton. Lee's first chapter is about Aaron Burr. And though he says he loves the soundtrack to the musical, he hates the way it's been turned into a political rallying point. Well, we got into all this. Also, his take on what the founding fathers would think of the healthcare process right now. He said they would loathe it. Remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. We've got great guests coming up, including Roy Cooper, the governor of North Carolina, and special episode with our playbook writers here at Politico, Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer. Follow me on Facebook and on Twitter at Isaac Dover. Email me with your thoughts and ideas at Isaac at Politico.com. And now, our conversation with Senator Mike Lee. You're not a historian. No. Uh, the book is is a history book in a lot of ways. Uh, can you expl- walk me through the process of this? You, you have a day job uh, that I assume keeps you pretty busy. You're yeah. a senator. Uh, what, how long have you been working on this, and what is the, uh, w- where do you get the ideas for who you wanted to include in this book? Yeah, it's a, an iterative process. It takes a couple of years. been working on this for a couple of years. The idea behind it was to tell stories that help frame the way we think about government, about America's founding. The Hamilton effect refers to the lens through which we view history, uh, refers to the fact that people will sometimes uh, use various founding fathers as uh, a mirror through which they see uh, their own political selves. Uh, I refer to the fact that some on the left have adopted Alexander Hamilton as almost a mascot for the progressive left. They'd like to see in him the progressive cause, even though I think in fairness, if you read his writings and study his history, uh, it wouldn't be fair to say that he was a champion of progressive causes, that there wasn't anything really like that then. But there is uh, an enormous temptation to use history to reflect back to you what you want to see in our government today. But what I've found over the years is that in getting people to talk about the Constitution, about uh, constitutional limitations on government, uh, it's much easier for people to talk about it, to get excited about it, to be passionate about it, if they know stories. And so it's about storytelling. I want people to connect with stories 
behind the Constitution, behind those who influenced America's founding. So how did this group of people, uh, most of whom I think uh, 99% of your readers have never heard of, uh, maybe they've heard of Aaron Burr, but probably a lot of them have heard of Aaron Burr through the, uh, the Hamilton musical. How do you come to them? I collect them. You know, I, I'm always scanning their horizon, looking for new stories, um, looking for people whose stories might be able to connect with people today. Uh, you, you mentioned Aaron Burr. You're, you're right. More people have heard of him in part because of the Broadway hit musical Hamilton. Uh, but from the musical, most of what they know about him is the, that he's the, uh, he's the damn fool who shot him. Uh, he's the guy who, who shot Alexander Hamilton. But there's much more to his story than that. Uh, he, he, was, he was someone who defended the rights of the individual uh, while serving as the vice president of the United States and therefore the president of the Senate during Thomas Jefferson's first term in office. When people were subjected to the impeachment and removal process, Aaron Burr was right there looking out for their rights, even though it wasn't in his political interest to do so. It was significant, I think, that he, he, he later almost lost his life uh, uh, through these treason charges that Thomas Jefferson brought against him in Jefferson's second term. Um, uh, and but for a very expert legal team and, and but for protections in Article Three of the Constitution that he successfully invoked, uh, he, he, he might well have been convicted on those charges and been executed. How many other of the lyrics of Hamilton do you have memorized? I, I, quite a few of them. I, I, I really like the music. It's catchy. Yeah, I have absolutely, uh, I can't carry a tune in, the, in a bucket. <laughs> uh, your point is that, that people take what they want from history, but it, all the people that you have in this book reflect the politics that you have in a lot of ways. Aren't you doing a similar kind of thing? Lin-Manuel Miranda found the parts of Hamilton's story that connected with him and his immigrant experience and his politics. You found people who connect with uh, your view of limited government and uh, fighting against the federal overreach. It is certainly impossible for one to completely divorce oneself from one's own experiences, one's own political views. Nonetheless, what I'm trying to do here is to bring up certain issues that have themselves been neglected uh, by telling the stories of historical figures who have in turn been neglected. Uh, people like Canasatego, the, the Iroquois Indian chief who taught Benjamin Franklin about federalism. Yeah, well, why don't you explain that, how that... Sure. So the two of them met at a conference in Albany in 1744. They became friends. Canasatego, a member of the Onondaga tribe, uh, was able to transmit to Benjamin Franklin uh, the knowledge they had accumulated over the centuries within the Iroquois Indian nation about federalism, about this concept that uh, these tribes could unite for purposes of operating as a nation, providing for their national defense while allowing uh, local government to continue within each member of that confederacy. And it worked. Now, there are a lot of things, a lot of things in our constitutional structure that we inherited in one way or another from Great Britain. Uh, uh, certain aspects of our government reflect that. Federalism doesn't. This didn't really have a lot of precedent in the British system of government, but it did in an American system of government, in ancient uh, uh, principles that were adopted by the Iroquois Confederacy. This was a Native American principle transmitted by Canasatego to Ben Franklin, from Ben Franklin to the other founding fathers. But we've neglected that. We've neglected federalism uh, uh, at the same time that we've forgotten about Canasatego. 
But isn't it tricky to, to take these people who were complex historical f- figures, it, no matter who's doing it, and try to connect them into the political debate of modern times and what's going on in this moment where you're thinking about conservative versus liberal ideas of the government? How, how, do, you, how do you manage that? Of course it's tricky. Uh, of course it's messy. But the point is there are certain figures who we've forgotten altogether. And when we forget their stories, when we don't tell them, we don't even know who they are, um, we, we allow the narrative to remain that is more or less one-sided uh, because history is usually written by the victors. And those who warn against big government early on sometimes have their stories neglected. It's human nature. It's how it works. But if we as a people keep some of these stories alive, we will be more able to learn from history. What level of research did you do to, to get beyond when you, you see uh, the name of, of uh, uh, kind of Sadeko? Uh, what do you do there to then go to the next level and find out about it? Dig into it until I uh, decide whether Dig it's interesting it enough. We're, we're... Uh, be, to decide whether or not it's interesting enough to pursue and whether or not it has a connection, whether or not it's still relevant today. Uh, some of these figures, uh, uh, for example, talked about privacy, mm-hmm. privacy in a way that's still relevant today. Uh, uh, James Otis, for instance, pushed back against the use of writs of assistance. Writs of assistance were these tools used by officers of His Majesty's government uh, prior to the revolution that could basically be used to say, you know, we're looking for bad stuff. Uh, the, the officers named in this may kick open any door, search any house they need to in order to do that. Uh, the more I see of a story like that, the more I want to look into it to figure out how it ties in today. Well, today we have an NSA uh, that does some things that worry people, worry people on both sides of the aisle at every point along the political continuum. Many of these issues are neither Republican nor Democratic. They're neither liberal nor conservative. They're just American issues. But they're issues that unless we focus on, unless we remember that we've seen some of this before, even though our technology has changed. And even though some the founding fathers the couldn't conceive of uh, what no. the NSA technology would be. They could never conceive of that. But the principle remains quite similar. The fact that the government says, you have something, we might want it. And even though you regard it as private, we should be able to get to it, and there shouldn't be anything in our path. That is a somewhat eternal principle. It's at least a principle that was alive and well 230, 240 years ago. So if you were to pick one of the people that you wrote in your book and and plop them into the modern day, who do you think would fit most easily into what's going on right now? I don't know that any of them would fit easily into it because, of course, a lot has changed since then. Uh, the, The founding generation would be amazed. It would be surprised. I think it would be very impressed um, by what has happened since then the, in terms of our exploding population, in terms of the success of this country economically and, and part otherwise. part of it, when people do, do these, uh, well, what, what, would you, what would they think if they were dropped into the modern day? They would probably think, why are there lights on the walls, right? Yes. <laughs> well, they, <laughs> Before we no, even they, got into the rest. They'd be very curious about that. Right. One person whose story I think resonates especially well with people today is Mumbet. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was a slave in pre-revolution Massachusetts and uh, for a few years, even post-revolution Massachusetts. Uh, the home in which she served, her, her master, Colonel John Ashley, was uh, part of uh, a group that wrote a document called the Sheffield Declaration. It recognized, in essence, that all human beings are free and equal. Uh, that language was later incorporated by John Adams into the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. And when she became aware of that, she herself 
marched down the street and into the offices of a man named Theodore Sedgwick, who interestingly enough had, had been involved in the drafting of the Sheffield Declaration. She said, if all people are free and equal, why can I be owned by another person? Why uh, could this institution of slavery be permitted to allow me to be less than free and equal with my master? And she eventually won her freedom, and she said something that I think resonates with people still today, even though fortunately in this country who have long abandoned uh, uh, that barbaric practice. She said, if at any moment in my life prior to winning my freedom, someone had offered me even one minute to be free, I would take that chance even if it meant that at the end of that minute I would lose my life. So you, you talked about how they would uh, look at what America has achieved. What do you think they'd make of the current political situation? I think many of them would look at it and say, this is what happens when you allow a government at the national level to have too many powers that can be exercised at the exclusion of state and local powers. Uh, I think many of them... What's the this in that sentence, that this is what happens? This is what happens, but meaning the uh, there's a lot of bipartisan rancor, a lot of excessive delegation of legislative power uh, from the legislative branch to the executive branch. And I, I mean in, in houses of representatives, senates, and White Houses of every conceivable partisan combination over the last 70 or 80 years. Um, there's been this transfer of power from the American people in two steps. First, from the people to Washington. Secondly, from Washington's, uh, the, the people's elected representatives in Washington, whose job it is to make the laws, over to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. Um, they would see that and say, this is the natural outcome of disregarding limits on power. I keep in my office two stacks of documents. One is a few inches tall. It's usually either a few hundred to a few thousand pages long, and it consists of the laws passed by Congress last year. Another stack, which is, uh, for last year, uh, 97,000 pages long, 13 feet tall, is last year's Federal Register. Uh, those are laws that are put in place by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. Men and women who are hardworking, well-intentioned, highly trained, specialized, but who don't ever stand for election. There's a big difference here. Most of the law measured by weight, by volume, by word count, is no longer passed by the people's elected representatives. This is the sort of thing that, uh, that perpetuates bipartisan rancor, uh, paralysis within Congress, and a lack of accountability by the government to the people. So what do you think they'd make of President Trump? Well, I think they would look at President Trump's election last year and perhaps say uh, the people want something different. They're certain that something has gone terribly wrong. They recognize that uh, in recent years you've seen a, an excessive accumulation of wealth in the hands of the few. This has uh, uh, been an economy that has been very good for the top 1%. But the forgotten man, the forgotten woman, the America's middle class has been neglected and feels squeezed. And so the people voted for something different, something that they perceived would return power to them. And what would they make of Donald Trump himself, do you think? I, I don't know. It's very difficult to put him back in that context. But I, I think they would make of him uh, much of what the American people make of, of him, which is someone who wants to come in and disrupt the status quo and wants to change the way things are happening. Some of the attacks on him say, well, this is what the founders were worried about. This, that's what the Hamilton electors group that was trying to uh, change the Electoral College uh, tally was saying that this uh, move away from someone that uh, they felt was uh, qualified to be president 
uh, even uh, when we see the tweets, people say, oh, well, this is uh, different from what we've had from previous presidents. Do you think any of that's fair? Would the founding fathers um, and the the ones that you think about, the way that you think about them, have a a view on uh, the president that would be against the way that he is? Or uh, would they say he was he's elected president of the United States and that's the way the system works? I, 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 I don't want to speak for for them on something that they could not have seen. But I will say my own impression is more consistent with the latter. They set up a system. That, that system was intended to operate in a certain way. It sets, the Constitution does a few things. It sets the ground rules for how the government functions, and it puts limitations on government power. So they set that in motion and said the process is going to work its way through. And so I, I, I don't think they would look at that and say, oh, we don't like this president or we don't think he's qualified. I think his qualifications occurred by virtue of the process that they themselves set up. That's what qualifies someone to be president. Let's talk about today uh, a little bit. Who's the leader of the Republican Party right now? At any given time when there is a Republican president, typically we regard that person as the leader of the Republican Party. I would say that is the case today. So Donald Trump is the leader. Yeah, we have a Republican president. He is the leader of the Republican Party. Who's the leader of the conservative movement? I don't know. There are a million people at any given time who might claim that distinction. Uh, But ideally, in the conservative movement, in any movement, there ought to be a whole lot of people who want to lead, who want to be uh, playing a role in the process. Anyone who's playing a role in the process is, by definition, a leader. Do you think President Trump is a leader of the conservative movement? Yeah, I I think he is. I think he's someone who's come to Washington with an idea of breaking up accumulated power. Do you think, I've talked to a number of Republicans about this, uh, this is a moment where uh, the Democratic Party's changing, the Republican Party's changing. What do you think the impact of what's going on in politics right now, President Trump, who is not a traditional conservative, a traditional Republican, uh, will be for what the Republican Party is down the road and how the conservative movement uh, evolves and adapts to uh, what it is faced with day by day? You know, it's hard to say. I, I, I tend to think that to the extent he sticks with conservative principles, uh, those are, are principles that will help bring about the kind of change he promised to bring in. He, he promised in his inaugural speech in January uh, by saying, I want today to reflect more uh, than just a change from one administration to another, one president to another, one political party to another, but to uh, be something that will bring about a shift of power from Washington, D.C. back to the American people. To the extent he adheres to those principles, which are by their nature conservative, uh, then I think that will bode very well for the future of the conservative movement. Was the the, the carrier deal that he uh, got through when he was president-elect, uh, was criticized by some people at the time of being not conservative economics from, from him. Do you think it was, was the Kerry deal conservative and is what, what we've seen from it since? You know, I'm ashamed to admit this. I don't know that much about the carrier deal or how it was brought about. I, 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 I really don't know. A conservative shift, uh, particularly a conservative shift in Washington, will generally take on one of a few uh, shapes. It will be something that either properly balances the power between the three branches of government uh, along the horizontal axis or uh, brings about a balance of power between the federal government and the states and localities along a vertical axis. 
I, I really don't know where that fits because I don't know. Let me ask you about one that you, I, I know you know a lot more about. Is the health care bill conservative? It wants to be. It's trying to be. The bill, as it was released um, uh, a few days ago, uh, is not sufficiently conservative for me to vote for it because it doesn't undo what I see as uh, uh, one of the most fatal flaws in the Affordable Care Act, which are the Title I health care regulations. Since those health care regulations have taken effect, we've seen an astronomical increase in the cost of health care. That has disproportionately affected America's middle class. Again, the forgotten man, the forgotten woman, the, the family with a household income of around $75,000 a year is really squeezed in this. And uh, this bill doesn't deal with them. The bill does, of course, help big insurance companies. Big insurance companies, by the way, the top 10 insurance, health insurance companies in this country had annual profits of around uh, 7 or $8 billion a year before Obamacare kicked in. They're at $15 billion a year now. Um, so, uh, but anyway, this bill uh, helps insurance companies. Uh, this bill helps the top 1%, certainly. This bill has some provisions for, uh, uh, for the poor. This bill neglects, to an excessive degree that I find intolerable, uh, the need to address the plight of the forgotten man and the forgotten woman. What do you think the founding fathers would make of this process uh, that created the bill that was uh, much more behind closed doors than we're used to? Uh, you were part of uh, some of that, uh, those negotiations behind closed doors, but without, so far, hearings or uh, a lot happening in public about it. I think they would loathe it, as I do, as I think most members of Congress do. Uh, it's not a good thing from a public policy standpoint to negotiate something that is supposed to be enacted by a legislative assembly consisting of elected officials. Uh, it's not a good thing to draft, negotiate, uh, 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 change it all behind closed doors and then bring it out telling people you got to pass it to find out what's in it. It's not a good thing. I also think getting back to what I was referring to earlier and getting back to, to federalism, one of the central themes of my book, um, that they would say this is part of what happens when you neglect the distinction between what is state and what is federal. There are huge differences in our states, in their populations, in how their populations are distributed and how people provide and consume health care within the states. There are huge differences in terms of populations. Uh, people in Vermont, most of them, I'm told, would much prefer a single-payer, government-run, government-funded health care system. I say let them do it. They could do so much more quickly. Effectively, efficiently. So do you think that Senator McConnell made a mistake in doing things this way? I would much prefer for them to have been open, and I that sounds like a yes. Don't yes, yes, I I, I do, and I, and I think we're dealing now with the consequences of of that. We're trying to find something that will work, but I think it would have been far preferable if we had uh, had opened it up. I think it would have also been far preferable if we had simply passed a repeal bill and gotten that part out of the way. One of the reasons why we don't have Democrats coming on board is that uh, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, it was passed strictly along partisan lines. There, there, there were no bipartisan votes in that. This became uh, a partisan football at that point. And so uh, Democrats have made clear to us, I wish they wouldn't, but they have made clear to us, that they don't want any part of dealing with something that re repeals even parts of Obamacare. So... Uh, as long as that was the case, I think we should have wiped the slate clean and then started over in an iterative step-by-step -step process, one in which we could have decided what comes next after Obamacare, 
uh, through various pieces of legislation, each being debated and discussed on its own merits under the light of day, that uh, ultimately could have, in many respects, gotten bipartisan votes. You spent some time talking with President Trump about the health care bill. Do you get the sense that he understands the details of what it would do? Yeah. I, uh, generally speaking, yes. The, now, this is a, Wait, a very— Wait, but I asked you about details. You say generally speaking. Well, yeah. Look, there's, there are very few individuals in the legislative branch or the executive branch or, or the judicial branch a lot there who understand every detail of it. But I, I think for a, for a president, uh, when compared to any American or even any American involved in government, I, I think he knows a lot about it. Because senators often walk out of those meetings and say, well, or members of the House, and they say, well, he doesn't seem to get the details. So uh, is that- He discussed a lot of details in our meeting the other day. I, and, and he didn't have a teleprompter in front of him. I didn't see him being scripted on any of that. I, I was actually fairly impressed with how many details he did know. Let me just ask you two more questions. And uh, One of your colleagues, uh, Orrin Hatch, uh, who's your fellow Utah senator, uh, should he run for re-election, do you think, at this point? That is entirely up to him. That is a very personal decision. You don't have to bring that up with him. Quick last one here. Your, your book is about people being written out of history. Who do you think right now is in danger of being written out of history? One of the themes of my book is that when you are against the accumulation of power in government, you speak out against it to the extent those concerns are neglected. Uh, uh, those same people are likely to be written out of history. But we can change that. The American Revolution was all about pushing back against consolidated, accumulated power and about restoring power to the individual, to the family, to the community, to the state. Uh, we can restore that. In order to restore it, we have to uh, familiarize people with, with our history, with our stories. That's why I wrote this book, and that's why I encourage people to read Written Out of History. So are you worried that you might get written out of history? If you oh, <laughs> I, that is far from the... Uh, 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 primary concern that I have at any given moment. My primary concern is making sure that we restore principles of limited government. That's what makes a difference to people. I don't care whether uh, 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 years from now, anybody knows or remembers my name. I expect that they won't. What I care about is what kind of government we leave for our people. All right. Well, I'll say your name right now. Senator Mike Lee, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. That was Senator Mike Lee. Thanks as always to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, and our intern, Rachel Cusick. Remember again to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.